please become a Patreon and support the show. Merci. And now our host, Stephen Lee Morris. He's the artistic director of CalArts Center for New Performance and dean of the CalArts School of Theater. He's an acclaimed international director who has staged uh, theater pieces and operas around the world. Travis Preston, welcome to Animal Farm. Uh, thank you for having me, Stephen. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, we're, we're privileged to have you. Uh, um, you have been Dean of Arts for, uh, the Dean of, of Cal Arts for 10 years. And um, you seem to bring to the school and to the programming at Red Cat, so to whatever degree you, you have a hand in that, you bring a, a singularly European perspective. We do not see the kind of um, psychological realism that permeates so much of our theater. And I'm wondering, you were telling a story about you had been from New York and you came to Los Angeles. And I'm wondering if you could tell why you chose to come to Los Angeles and to CalArts. Yes, thank you. I Well, actually, um, when I was approached to come to CalArts, uh, I came as a guest director. Uh, and I, at the time I was head of the acting program at NYU. <clears throat> and and yet I was directing almost full time. I was, and my career was largely in Europe. And when I came to CalArts to work, um, I found a very, very unique ecology. First of all, of course, as a training institution, the CalArts School of Theater is the only uh, major training program that is in the context of an art school. Yeah. So all of the others um, are in university structures for the most part. And certainly NYU is a large uh, university structure. And they asked me to come. Uh, that is Stephen Levine and, the, and the, the theater program asked me to come. And I said I would come if they would invest in creating a professional producing arm. And this then became the CalArts Center for New Performance. Um, and the reason that was important to me was because of, obviously, Stephen, one of the things that you know is that beginning with the Reagan era, the contraction of public money for the arts was very dramatic over time. And places that could nurture the development of artists and the producing of works that were outside of a commercial paradigm became less and less possible. Yeah. So very much we felt that um, it was important to create a place that would be reflective of CalArts legacy of experimentation um, and yet was a, we say professional producing because, but that's a little bit, Center for New Performance is a little bit like a, um, a little bit like an iceberg in the sense that very few of the works actually are produced through us. 
many of the works seek to nurture artists who are taking really experimenting with things. And so when I came to law, when I came to Los Angeles to work, I realized that there was an environment that that actually reminded me more of New York when I when I moved to it in 1980, 1979, 1980, yeah. um, that was, first of all, there was an enormous amount of interdisciplinary activity. Yeah. Um, it was expanding the performance landscape into arenas that were removed from a kind of naturalistic, um, naturalistic drama. And additionally, there was an exciting, uh, exciting opportunity. And this was the relationship to a geo geopolitical shift toward Asia and Latin America. And that was more, most profoundly felt here. Um, and that has been an exciting driver for our work ever since. I will say that we are dedicated at, I think at CalArts uh, and at the Center for New Performance, certainly, to, uh, to liberate the artist um, and to liberate the artist to engage things that they may only be vaguely aware of and that may not be always supported by the larger culture. Um, could, I, could I ask a, a quasi rude question? And that's to liberate them from what? Well, I think that the commercial paradigm has become very powerful in the United States since 1980. Mm -hmm. And um, if we were to look at the graph of public funding, it kind of goes like this. Whereas when I graduated from the Yale School of Drama, the first thing that happened to me, Stephen, was I got a, an NEA grant that was enough for me to live on for a year. And similarly, the financial pressures for an artist are considerably graver than they were when I emerged as an artist. Um, the, um, uh, I lived in New York. I, I, might, I might add, I lived in New York. I didn't have a job. And it was possible. And I might add, I lived on uh, West 13th Street between 6th and 7th, which today is really only populated by, by um, hedge fund um, uh, magnates. Um, and so, so all of, the, when, we say, when I say liberate, I believe that there are certain habitual practices determined by efficiencies. And those efficiencies are primarily economic efficiencies. So, for example, when we develop a piece, it often takes a very, very long time. We do multiple workshops of that work. We're doing a project by Octavio Solis um, that um, is, is actually unique for us because it is a play uh, that Octavio wrote. Um, and we've had now four workshops of that piece, and we will be mounting it in Red Cat um, in September. Um, and it has been evolving over a long period of time. And that evolution really would be very, very difficult within most circumstances of the American theater, simply for financial reasons. So. Yes. That's one form of liberation. The other form of liberation, I think, 
is really that that there is and and it relates to the difference between the art school context and the larger university context universities and this was true at Yale, it was true at NYU, it was true at Harvard, where I was together with Bob Brustein for the founding of the American Repertory Theater. Universities really prize things that can be rationally explained. They like things to be articulated effectively. But some of the most exciting impulses that artists can have are often in their inception, very, very difficult to articulate. They're almost there. And, and those impulses are things that we seek to nurture. So additionally, we seek to liberate the artist from the positivist, um, rational processes that we can often see associated with the grant application <laughs> you know it's like yeah. Uh, yeah. and to enfranchise things that are inchoate that are imaginatively imaginative expansions that are not easy for the art the artist to articulate themselves and those are some of the things thank you you mentioned that um that you have found Los Angeles right now is more open to aesthetics that you said you you got just got back from um, from pa Paris, Germany and Poland, I think are the three countries you mentioned. And at the same time, I was in Kosovo and I think we're, we were looking at plays that had an aesthetic for the most part that's wildly different from the plays seen on the American regional theater stages or for that matter, the British stages. There were UK writers and critics in Kosovo breathing in this theater like fresh air. And they're saying, they're saying I don't know if they were used the word liberated, but they said, oh, it's to be free of British literalism, which is kind of what you're addressing. And I'm just wondering, New York, you said, is, is, has gone back does not have that kind of spirit of experimental and the celebration of the incohate that you just articulated anymore since, and you said it's been sliding since 1980. Um, first, did you say that? I, I, I just not verify, not put words in your mouth. And second, what are the reasons for that? Are, are they similar? Are they, do they have to do with uh, financial expedience? I think there's similar challenges. It's just that in the New York landscape, as I observe it now, because you know it's been some time since I've lived in New York, though indeed I'll be traveling there in a bit. There's of course a robust theater ecology, but the economics of all urban living in the United States and particularly those on the coasts um, has, uh, really impacted an artist's ability uh, to, to be entirely free in their practice uh, because it's so costly to live. And I think that's the prime driver. And I wouldn't say that we're by any means excluded from that. It's as difficult to uh, live in Los Angeles yes, it is. as it is in New York City. Um, however, the, the, the 
the geographical uh, uh, difference between New York and LA, uh, I think gives LA uh, a bit more, a bit more breathing room in that regard. And also because it wasn't a, a traditional theater uh, powerhouse um, and uh, that, that being really Broadway centered and then moving out from Broadway. Um, it has a, a more, in my view, a more curious uh, ecology of performance experimentation. And um, that's, that's really, but I do think economics is the prime driver. And I think one of the things that has, has you know, altered that ecology dramatically is the fact that all of these, in, all of these cities, and that could, that would include London, it would include Miami, New York, LA, any of the places that are coastal capitals, um, is they stimulate, uh, they stimulate um, global real estate investment. Yes. And that has made the, the price of living in these places much higher. Yeah. And that, of course, impacts the artists who are attempting to do work in those places. Um, exactly. Is one of the answers, perhaps, because this is a bit of a digression, but is one of the answers, perhaps, to try to do theater in less expensive real estate outside the urban centers? There's no question that that is already happening. You can see in Europe, of course, there's constant migration of artists to cities. Um, and then as generally happens with gentrification, artists can move in and then all of a sudden things begin to change. There's no question that, for example, recently I've heard that there's quite a bit of movement into places like Detroit certainly an urban center, yes. but one, one that had been vac vacated um, uh, for a time. And that this is, yes, I do feel um, that I'm, I'm actually noticing some artists who are, um, who are very effective uh, in Los Angeles, who have sought other landscapes to create their work. Yes. Yes. When I was in the Balkans, the first thing I noticed on landing in Pristina, as I looked around the airport and then traversed the city, was that there are almost no people of color, what we would call people of color. But mm -hmm. that, certainly, the Balkans are ground zero for Balkanization and for um, a degree of animosity that reached a genocidal pitch at the turn of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So there's no shortage of, of people to beat up and look down and keep out. And there, of course, in Kosovo, there are the ethnic Albanians who are most predominantly Muslim next door to the Serbians from Croatians who are predominantly Christian. So there it's a, a theological war and that's their issue. And it, if, if it were, in a weird way, the debates and the, the way they're grappling with this in plays and in conversations is strikingly similar to the way in the United States and in Britain and in Germany, they're dealing with um, 
the racial tensions. It's still tribes, no matter how you look at it. And the, the, the politics of resentment for the people who have been kept out for whatever reasons, for either ethnic or theological reasons, or perhaps just cultural indifference. It's, 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 it's hard to pin it. I am wondering on how you, in your work and in your position as dean, working in an institution such as CalArts, um, are dealing with these tensions. Um, it's called, you know, racial reckoning. Maybe it's just um, mm -hmm. that, that that's the term for it. But um, it's, it's more racial awakening, perhaps, is, is mm -hmm. more apt. Yeah, I think that what we have uh, is an exciting moment of opportunity. And that has, that has been reflected across the CalArts landscape. There's no question that, um, as, as you had mentioned earlier in our pre-interview pre conversation, that uh, President Ravi Rajan has placed, a, you know, a very, very, has, has placed a very assertive emphasis on issues related to social justice. And certainly um, the racial reckoning is a part of that. Uh, CalArts is an exceedingly diverse community and that diversity extends also into the, you know, we have an enormous number of international students. Yes. Um, and, um, and it's an exciting landscape. And one, and I think this is one of the particular keys one that is seeking to find the aesthetic expansion that moves together with the expansion of consciousness uh, around issues of social justice and racial cultural equity. And I believe that there is, and so in addition to our celebration of the diversity of our community and our real commitment to expand that diversity. Um, we have the concomitant interest in using the, the, uh, the cultural diversity that is a facet of our community as a way to ex expand the aesthetic landscape so that, um, so that, um, our artists are not tied to earlier, more, um, let us just say, more um, um, white-dominated aesthetic paradigms. Um, and I Could think- Could you give some examples of that, of those paradigms, just so as we go from the theoretical to the concrete? Well, I think that there's, you know, we can understand that we have the whole idea. I, I, there's actually an artist that we're working with right now, who you may know. Um, Daniel Alexander Jones is an extraordinary artist. He has created an alter ego by the name of Joe Mama Jones um, uh, some years ago. And we are in partnership with the public theater in New York City for uh, a project that was commissioned by the public um, uh, called Alter. Uh, and there's Alter number one is what we are working on. 
And what uh, Daniel is doing, the premise, is that there is a tradition of altar creation within a multiplicity of cultures, Caribbean culture, mm -hmm. certainly, mm -hmm. in African culture, this kind of creation of altars. And um, this is a, a thing that is, the altar is a communal creation on the one hand. Um, and this has been translated by, by um, Daniel into a performative context. And now, of course, please understand that the that the pandemic has slowed us down a little bit <laughs> with respect to this. Um, but a feeble in, excuse, Travis. A feeble excuse. In fact, what it meant was that we are. Uh, what it meant was that we are 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 have transited in the near term to an online experience that had yeah, to do with yeah. the release of these uh, salutations, so to speak, but with a preparation for an in-person experience that I think would be extremely different than a conventional theatrical experience. Uh, now, conventional meaning going to a fixed seating structure in a place. Now, we know that there have been many experiments related to this, but here, elements of, of, of um, let's say, religious practice that isn't, um, that is, is more uh, related to African and Afrocentric um, uh, practices um, is really the core of creation for the whole experience. And I would say that that's, that's one of the things that's really exciting to me about this period, um, mm -hmm. that this is a, a, an opening to another kind of experience. And I hope, Stephen, that we're able to present that. You know, obviously, as you know, uh, from your recent trip to, um, to Eastern Europe, we're, the Europeans are going through another wave of, yep. the, of the pandemic we can only hope that we can kind of slide by there. I hope that by next fall, we'll be able to be in a more regularized situation where we can be a little bit more adventurous with the relationship of the audience to the event. And that has been central to Daniel's planning of this piece. Um, and so I'm excited by that. The, thank you. The, um... That, that's very interesting. I'm still going to return to the question just for point of clarification. I think you're very clear about um, the impulses that Daniel is following and they're, they're, they're almost rich, as much ritualistic as they are drama, you know, dramaturgical. You referred to white theater paradigms and the closest I could get to that is a fixed theater with seats in no. a theater. Is it, is it beyond that? Is, is it a kind of play? I just want to know, I want to hear it from you, what people are breaking away from and what your, what your, um, goal is in to, uh, to use your word, liberate the art form from those paradigms. Um, what think, is that paradigm? I'm just trying to get as specific as I can. Sure. I think that, that um, 
it's it's actually I think Stephen you'll appreciate that it's almost it's happening so um, it's happening so pervasively that the awakening as you described it is creating a challenge to all uh, paradigms and those include some aesthetic paradigms and one of those might be the well-made play. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, One of no. them might might be the well-made play, where we've had effective, uh, we've had effective, if not to say transformative, artists of color working within um, a construct that we could describe as the well-made play, and then beginning many years ago, but continuing. Um, an expansion of that into different aesthetic landscapes and uh, different imaginative landscapes that could not be contained by the parameters of representation, for example, um, that we would associate with, oh, you know. Um, um, one actor, one character. Yes, one actor, one character, a uh, a represented environment that is meant to, you know, uh, that is um, the living room in in Akron. In, exactly. Yeah. And and I I'm I'm slightly, you know, I don't want to, you know, this is a process that's been going on for some time. Um, we have extraordinary uh, writers, and I think it's appropriate to say this is a great moment for um, for uh, certainly black playwriting is extraordinary moment um, in, the, a, in the American drama scene. Um, so I'm excited, I'm excited by this. And I might also add, there's been a different landscape of opportunity. Um, you know, we recently came, uh, we recently um, had uh, Nataki Garrett come back to CalArts, uh, Nataki, uh, was a student of mine. Uh, in fact, I, I, I recall that Nataki was the first student that I accepted when I came to California. And, um, and then, of course, she maintained her relationship over the years to CalArts as, as a, a faculty member and then as my associate artistic director uh, of the CalArts Center for New Performance and as associate dean. And then we, when I, when I was Dean and we made that appointment, I said, you know, Nataki, if you're here 10 years from now, I'm going to have to find a way for you to move on because um, it was not my intention to bring you as a student and to have you maintain your entire career within the CalArts structure. Um, and so she went on to an associate artistic director position at Denver Theater Center. And of course, now in recent times was appointed the artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And as I see, and, and, and that's an opening, I would suggest could not have happened, certainly wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, and as I follow her artistic program, I think it is changing dramatically the landscape of uh, the resident theaters. Hmm. And I hmm. feel like, and to your earlier point, and I think this is really exciting. You'd, you'd mentioned that the pandemic provided you with a breath. Um, and Nataki's said the same thing. 
Nataki said the same thing to me when she was back at CalArts a couple of weeks ago. She said, um, the pause provided by the pandemic gave her the respite to reconsider yeah. what she needed to do because otherwise she's just got to get just butts in seats, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's a massive theater operation that she has to fuel. Um, so I'm very excited by what's happening there. So in addition to the transformation that is occurring within the aesthetic arena, uh, the increased opportunity for artists of color within the actual management and artistic structures of theaters um, is having transformative power. Mm. Thank you. Travis Preston, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so pleased. Um, it's great to see you again. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again sooner rather than later. Right. Perhaps in, in an actual theater venue. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I, I look forward to it, Steve. Next week, we're joined by Darantina Basha one of just a handful of women playwrights emerging from the Balkans. Thank you.